0: the end of the shoot he said hey i'm going to this netflix um movie and i'm not available to do the um uh pickups for this film that i shot with uh jordan peele it's like john peele he's awesome i love uh Key and Peele. peel yeah yeah and i uh, said what's the project and he said well you know if you're if you're up for it would you fill in and um and shoot these pickups for me and so i read the script and it was freaking brilliant i was like this is this is awesome
1: we didn't expect jack thompson to say yes but jack thompson came back and said yes and then billy zane said yes and so suddenly in the middle of shooting production and i've got the problem of jack thompson and billy zane have both said yes to this one role (laughs) I've, i've made my other producer actually make the call or write the email saying oh look you know we're we're going with Jack will you know, we'll write something specially for you for the sequel or something for, for Billy because it was quite difficult and um, expensive to have him there and he was like, you put me in this fucking movie, I've spent too much time. What? Like, he was like, he really wanted to do it and I literally, when they say sleepless nights, I did not sleep that night.
2: Welcome back to the Flats, another episode tonight. Got two uh, world-famous filmmakers in the studio tonight. We've got uh, Denson, cinematographer, and uh, Che, filmmaker, producer, director. Welcome, guys. Thank you for for joining us here tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And uh, you're Denson in town for a... uh, acs event last Mm, night Yeah, the the australian cinematographer society has a chapter here in canberra lots of active members and um filmmakers here in canberra but you've come in to to have a little chat how did it go last Mm. night
0: it was fantastic yeah i was invited to come in and uh, do a presentation of uh, some of my recent work and i showed some uh, material showed a few scenes and some behind the scenes uh images and shared a few anecdotes and tips and tricks and it was a really great really great night.
2: Yeah, awesome. And cha you you're uh, obviously in the middle of working on a, a big production um, the follow up to Blue World order. Um, yeah,
1: it's all um it's all relative really. Um, my big production is is probably Denson's uh, short film but um, <laughs> I don't know about But that. for uh, for um, yeah, a local production um just finishing a film called States of Mind, which is about a meditation retreat in a haunted house. What could go wrong? Um, which is uh, coming up really well. Um, so that's uh, engaged a lot of Canberra crew and um, uh, we've just about gotten over the line with it. I think by the end of the week, I should have a, a good screenable um, version of the film. Um, so pretty much, uh, pretty much there.
2: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you both about the the filmmaking process. Obviously, um, I'm used to just doing small little productions, but how do you guys go with, with keeping that passion over a project for, like, years, sometimes five-plus years from writing it to getting it up? I, I don't have the energy to do, like, a two-day shoot, so <laughs> how do you guys... Uh, um, keep that passion along the, along the way
1: well look, one of the things i think that's most apparent is you know the fact that denson's here tonight um and hanging out is a testament to the kind of people that you meet when you do this sort of thing um i think most people involved are incredibly passionate um at what they do if they've won any longevity in the industry and i met denson many many years ago um we, we claim we're brothers when it's appropriate. <laughs> we do share it. The, s- baker, s- surname, boys, the yeah. baker boys. Yeah. <laughs> um and you know, the fact that you forge friendships and relationships over long periods of time help you keep the passion. I think the people you meet um along the way keep you and you just meet really interested, talented people, you know. So um
0: yeah, yeah that's uh, one of the things. I would say that also it does it does stay fresh. From I mean, there's a very long period from the initial mm. conception of a project through to the time you're actually on set shooting it, and then until you're finally ready to release and screen it. But um, each stage is uh, is a new chapter, a new people. They're come completely along. different skill sets, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, really. I mean, I I mean, as a cinematographer, I'm mainly involved with, you know, four to six weeks of prep on a project five to six weeks shoot, unless it's a TV series and it's months. Um, and then I go away from it for a while and then I'm back to do a grade, which might be 10 days if it's a feature. Two, two weeks is uh, usually the the grade. But uh, I am also married to a director, um, writer, producer, so I am actively I was going to say in, you're probably far more so
1: involved in that side of more it. So more than most
0: cinematographers would have the opportunity to um for better or worse, yeah. but I think it means that I'm there in very early stages where I can start having conversations about um, looks and aesthetic and inspiration. And I think when it comes to uh, yeah that that long period of uh, of being involved with the project, that I mean, I find once you're on set, each scene is like uh, it's like live theatre. Mm-hmm. This is your little window of time in a schedule where it's on. This is now. This is when we're capturing that uh, that scene we've been talking about for weeks months and years this is it this is our chance let's let's do it let's make it great and, and that's that's where the excitement is often
1: that was one of the um one of the sayings we were having on the most recent shoot when uh you know the camera might not have been working and i'm like well unless you hit record it's all just expensive theater so <laughs> we've got to <laughs> got to actually capture it <laughs>
0: with a pretty
2: small audience if you're not recording. <laughs> yeah. are you do you so you work with your wife yeah, I do, I'm not most, exclusively, I do yeah, work with other, yeah. other
0: directors, but I've, I shoot, yeah, we actually met at film school, so we've been working together wow. for a long time.
1: Wow. Mm. Wonderful Claire McCarthy, amazingly mm. talented lady. And, yeah. Um, they're a, truly a, um Australia's power couple, cinematic power couple. No, these a few days. power
0: couples, with, oh. with one of them. <laughs>
1: and New Zealand as well. Yes. you
2: going across.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a Kiwi-born boy.
2: And how do you find that dynamic? Working Being yeah, with your, yeah, <laughs> yeah, partly kiwi, but also working with your, uh, with your wife.
0: Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's got to a point now that I feel like that I'm at an advantage. We, I know her style, and we've, I've been intrinsically involved in the projects that we're doing to such a degree that by the time we're on set, we have a shorthand. We're not having. We're not talking about nitty gritty details with that stuff's already covered or or just instinctually already know what's it's like be a right. wavelength there totally yeah. yeah well or jedi shit is what yeah we, <laughs> that's, <laughs> um, so that's great and i've done you generally as a as a cinematographer and director relationship you eventually get to that point whether you're a, a married couple or not either but you also do get into positions and i feel like i i mean i i've Got an approach where I will always present my thoughts, feelings, and ideas, and I'm never, I'm never offended if a director, whether it's my wife or someone else who I'm not married to, mm-hmm. who's directing, um, that I'm not going to have a you know thin skin and feel offended. I just like get on with it and keep Does working on it. Does
1: that shorthand crossover into your uh, married life and parenting? You know, like some of the, some of my my partner, you know, if one of us has to go to the bathroom, we'll say final checks and that's our kind of code for going to the bathroom, sort of go to the <laughs> toilet. <laughs> so there's, there's weird, weird little things that have crept into our life actually. We don't have that one. You don't know, <laughs> there. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if any of that film terminology has crept into your world.
0: Uh, no, no, no. I mean that, that's the one of the things that is uh, interesting being married to the director you're working on, working on a project uh, with is that um a a production meeting can happen at any time of the day midnight morning yeah I, there were times i remember when we we're on some some big shoots that claire would be dreaming uh and would wake up talking lenses and yeah. talking about a scene that wasn't even on the schedule and and that's not an experience you often get unless you're you know married to the to the director
1: are you billing those hours <laughs> <laughs> i don't to think the budget except <laughs> would, would
0: the, uh, the invoice for that Certainly.
1: <laughs> Claiming the, uh, claiming the meals, though,
0: right, <laughs> on tax.
1: Yeah, that was totally a work production meeting. Yeah, yeah. And so
2: what, what are some of those projects you've worked on together?
0: Yeah, well, we, we met out of film school and uh, we did a short film together. It was our first uh, – that was a, a um, Australian um, – or the um, Australian Film Commission-funded um, short. And uh, that then led on to our first feature together, which was The Waiting City, which we shot in Kolkata, India with uh, Radha Mitchell and Joel Edgerton and uh, Isabel Lucas among um, a stellar, uh Indian cast. And um, that really did sort of launch both of our careers in, and uh, that's where the trajectory kind of started there. And that, that particular project has led on to a lot of other projects um, together. I mean, that said, we had done a bunch of music videos and short films and various smaller projects together. But we um, have yeah, done um, our next feature together after that was a film called Ophelia, which we shot in the Czech Republic with um, Daisy Ridley in the, uh, in the, the role of Ophelia. It's the, it's the Hamlet story told through Ophelia's perspective. Um, we had um, George Mackay as Hamlet and uh, Naomi Watts. It's Gertrude, we had um, Tom Felton was in there and um, Clive Owen. It was a brilliant cast, and we had Che Baker also playing a role. Uh, well, there there
1: may have been an expert chicken plucker in the uh, in the kitchen, <laughs> and they, um, one of the serfs, I believe. Um, they I, I went I went to visit these guys in Prague. I was I was in London, I think, mm. for um, Blue Wall Daughter premieres, and then someone's like, "Oh, we're in Prague. You should come visit." And I kind of laughed and went. I actually could, I actually could come visit. And, um, yeah, so I turned up and it was amazing. And then of course they, you know, they're like, oh, you're here. Put him in a costume. Put him in a costume, (laughs) throw him in the back. No, that was, and it was, I mean, you know, I have to say it was such a pleasure and a privilege to see these guys work together. Um, the, uh, you know, Claire and Denson's shorthand on set was very apparent. Um, and Denson was incredibly generous with, um. Just the, uh, yeah, the, oh, I remember standing next to the yeah, that scene. Just the, um, how he was achieving certain looks and the, the time periods that went by. Um, so it was a real um, honour to be able to sort of be on set for a week or so and, and just watch these guys work together.
2: Yeah, yeah, it looks like an amazing place to be. It is, filming, yeah. We yeah. were
0: very, we were fortunate because we, um, I mean, we had quite a lengthy prep for that, and um, like a couple of, it was three months um, leading up to before we well, that we arrived in the in Prague um, before we started rolling cameras, and um, we got to do incredible location scouts. We saw pretty much every um, medieval castle in the region, and of which there's some amazing ones. But the thing I realized, what we discovered, is um, shooting in castles is actually really hard. Just just getting equipment in. They, they were never built for truck access. Mm. Um, so we did, uh, we shot in a bunch of different castles, um, some that have been used in many films uh, before, like Krivoklat castles when yeah, you came out yeah. But a lot of it we built on the soundstage at um, Barandov Studios as well. But that was a real challenge. And that's, um, I, I think that's also, this is a particular experience where um, me being um, married to the director was advantageous for both of us. Um, not just the fact we got to have uh, such a long lead of prep and, and really talk in detail about the visual style that we wanted to create, but being such a challenging shoot, we and we you know we're really feeling the pressure at times. We um, we were there for each other to have each other's back and to you know, just look out for things that were coming down the track, whether it's with the execs or the just with the production scale yeah. of production. Needing There's a lot a of local
1: of, crew that you had sort of you know um local production companies that facilitated a lot of the the regular stuff wasn't
0: yeah uh, yeah we had um still king films who do that yeah they you could say they were a service production company i mean they're a massive production company do a lot of production in um in the czech republic um and they were brilliant but um yeah it was um it it was what was for both of us, that was the biggest scale production we had worked to mm. work together on um, to date up to that point. And um, so, yeah, we, um,
1: we were there to hold and each other's hand through it. Premiered at Sundance, with, you know, too much mm. acclaim. It was really great as well to see that.
2: How was it um, – you said it was your first big one. How was it stepping up from you? you were doing short films, that sort of thing, to now – on a feature? what? Yeah, I mean, you- I'd done other features before yeah.
0: Yeah. I, and I'd started with smaller features. My first feature was a film called Deck Dogs, an Australian um, teen skater drama. Um, Sounds um, awesome. It, what, yeah. Oh, I thought it was yeah. It, yeah. It's, it, um Yeah, well, we had Tony Hawk is starred in it. He's in the, oh, big, no way. the big finale uh, scene. And um, yeah, we shot it on 16 millimeter, two cameras on the shoulder. We shot it in Sydney and, and Adelaide um steve pozolsky was the um the director don't you don't have to put the trailer on for this one <laughs> <laughs> i want to
2: see this Tony hawk scene uh-huh. yeah
0: but this i mean this is some time ago i've been around for a bit um oh, yeah you found it but um yeah, yeah this is it uh, the, the, that was uh, that was that was called shooting wide-angle lens shots um with tony hawk oh that's that's not the actual um Oh, this Trailer. is a behind-the-scenes. A, a loop yeah. of him yeah. doing in the bowl. Oh, here we go. Yeah. So that's not me operating the camera there. That's another, like, skate um, cinematographer who's a friend of Tony's who showed a lot of his stuff. That's unreal. But this was a, yeah, this was a drama. And the idea was that it was a, um, a like, uh, do you know BMX Bandits? Mm. Yeah. This was, like, BMX Bandits of um, of skating. Yeah, it awesome. was. Mm. But so that was, um, yeah, that was my first feature. Um and each feature was sort of a step up bigger more budget bigger cameras bigger crew you were saying that um
1: last night that uh waiting city was still sort of working for you that that film um led to one of your most recent projects yeah
0: yeah um yeah i just did a film called uh, mountain boy which we shot in the uae and um the um and I had an absolutely brilliant time and it was a, a period film set in um, in the Middle East, um, in the nineteen fifties and it's about Mountain Boy is um in brief is a he's a autistic boy who's um, fled from his his village due to a misunderstanding and has grown up in isolation. A young girl discovers him and brings him back down into the villages and he goes on an adventure and um his uh his autism autism, which is what he first thought was his um a problem as now being seen by the people he encounters along the way as almost like a superpower he's um got the ability to you know sense the incoming weather and uh, sandstorms and he he connects with uh, nature and animals in ways which us others uh, don't um so it's a really beautiful tale mm. but um yeah i i met with the one of the producers um Nancy Patton she said um uh that was one of the first questions i asked like, why me how did you come across my name and she said oh, i was at a film festival and was talking about the project to someone from screen australia and they said you should check out the waiting city this australian film because it sounds like that's kind of the look you're going for and so she did and um i got the job
1: yeah and it looks beautiful to the um we were we got a bit of a privilege of some of the behind the scenes um, looks and Mattified mm. some...
0: Mountain Boy online it hasn't been released. Yeah, I was just out. having a quick look. And he went right. through yeah. uh you know
1: how he achieved a lot of those looks to the um you know the ACS cinematography nerds so we were all kind of treated to a bit of uh behind the magic curtain stuff <laughs> to um yeah but
0: yeah looking forward to that. Do you know when that is released? I don't. It's having when a um a East premiere right. first and then other territories. Stay tuned.
2: Yeah. Uh, awesome. And and Jay, you're um, you're producing this next film. So is that um, been a change for you since your last few where you've been directing?
1: Um, look, I, I've I've sort of um, been writing, directing, and producing along the way. Mm. Um, they all they're sort of uh, like Denson was saying. Each phase is quite different. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I would just write and direct and some producer would come and take care of all the logistics for me and um, raise all the money and <laughs> off we go. But, um, you know, the the reality is to get things going, you, you often have to make your own content. I, I often say to a lot of... Um, people in the film, world, you end up doing the thing that facilitates the thing you really want to do? So, you know, actors end up, you know, shooting their own content directors end up producing producers end up, you know, distri- forming distribution companies. So, um, being able to write, produce and direct means that you can, um, you know, as you're writing the script, you're actually thinking about how you're going to shoot it and what it's going to cost along the way. Um, so it's kind of they're they're very related uh but it's not necessarily um it's not necessarily the the best way to do it in the sense of you know in a in a perfect world um you know you would just direct and someone else would make your creative vision happen um but I think it actually is a bit of a superpower in understanding the constraints and you know you can you can write in your script a a helicopter chasing a a motorbike and um and then you go "Oh, hang on we can't afford that so i can have a uh let's have a motorbike chasing a skateboard you know it's the same device it's a faster more powerful thing chasing something slower and whatnot but it's you know within a budget and i think when you um are, are involved in those processes and you're you understand a little bit about what things are going to cost right from the get-go. You can, you can write that in. You know, if you say it was a dark and stormy night as your opening line, then you know, hang on, there's a giant VFX budget and some you know some rain effects that is going to cost you something. Or if it was it was a pleasant sunny afternoon, <laughs> it's like it's much cheaper. <laughs> um, so those kind of things come into your head in a way that. It might not if you were just purely involved, you know, just writing the script. Um, so this one States of Mind has, it was initially, I was talking to Denson before um, today, it was initially the low-hanging fruit um, of a a bunch of actors that I knew who were, you know, really talented actors, but for whatever reason hadn't, you know, had their breakout. And I wanted to create a bit of a showcase um, ensemble piece for them. And, um while uh, I had the option to a Matthew Riley novel called Contest, which was um, you know his first book, and while I was trying to shop that around and and get that up at a much larger budget, um, I sort of had the the lower budget film that was going to be just you know essentially a bunch of friends and um, a single location and you know, very run and gun. Um, then of course COVID happened, and so the big project you know got put on hold um, and then the the smaller one seemed possible. So it was kind of working backwards going, what resources do I have? I had access to this amazing house. Um, I had a, great, a bunch of great um, actors. And so I kind of wrote a story to fit those resources as opposed to writing a story and then finding the resources to make it happen. It was sort of doing that whole process in reverse, which was interesting. And how have you enjoyed that so far? <laughs> um, oh, it's fantastic, living the dream. Yeah. Um, like well, it's it, it's great. Den, Denson will attest to you. You know, it's it's curveballs. It's um, there's moments of joy and elation. Actually, there's moments of extreme stress and moments of relief. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you go through lots of different emotions along the way, but the the only way particularly when you're producing and you you're putting your own money at risk and other people's money that you know are relying on you the only way out is through so there's just no there's no other way than to get it done like once you start spending that once you spend that first chunk of money um literally the only way to get it back is to finish the film and and you know get it all back at the end mm-hmm. so um you're you're all in once it once the ball's rolling so you want to make sure you you're ready
2: how have you found that, the dealing with the budget and you're getting these projects up that you're just like, how is he doing it with this budget and um, independent film? You've got to be crazy to to even attempt to start doing that sort of stuff. How do you how did you find uh, both for Blue World Order and the, the new film trying to manage that budget and getting it off the ground?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, a lot of it is... I spent a lot of time eating humble pie on big projects for a long time, learning as much as possible, Um, you know, working on, you know, things like Dawson's Creek and, and the Hobbit and all that sort of stuff as a very small cog in a very big machine. And just observing where the money went and what was essential and got on screen and what didn't, it sort of gives you, it took, you know, 20 years for me to feel confident enough that I could say, yep, okay, give me a million dollars or more, and and I feel confident to get that back to you, um, because, you know, you you like Denser was saying, you get a lot of you do music videos, you do, in um, cameras, like you know, a lot of very talented corporate video pro- producers, and you know the corporate video production world is a lot of um, one man band sort of stuff, so you'll. You'll get one woman who'll shoot it and cut it, and you know, do the music, and and then another friend will come in and um, hold the boom for a day, and so you get a, a much more broad experience on the smaller projects. And um, I sort of got to a point where I was comfortable enough with what it actually took to get a film made that I could um, try it on a small project. So Blue World Order was a very um, small project, budget-wise, and it was small enough that uh, it could learn about all the teething problems and test the model. And you know, it was terrifying. Um, lots of curveballs that you don't expect, um, and every project has their own challenges, and they're not the ones that you you plan for. Um,
0: it's interesting you say small, but it's incredibly I know. I was. And, I was going to say wise, that, it's too. The, and it's it's epic, man.
1: Well, I mean, look, I'm I'm I was pretty happy with, in the sense of. And look, you you've got absolute yeah, legends of cinema in there. We we punched above our weight for what we had. But um it's one of those things that you know, you get a lot of no's and then when you when you start going, a lot of the no's become yeses, and a lot of a lot of doors open up that were closed. Um, you know, the the guys who had the wasteland cars, you, you find ways to um getting Bruce Spence and Jack Thompson and Billy Zane, you know, that wasn't in the
0: initial thing but once you're going you're sort of all in (laughs) i think this is an example of why you can't refer to a project by its budget yeah you can't say this is a low budget film an ultra low budget film a a big budget like the budget is not what defines um, a great film or a well executed film well
1: yeah thanks i mean look it was an incredibly supportive canberra community and a lot of a lot of local people who stepped up into new sort of roles and um you know, how many Deloreans did you have? Yeah, so we had <laughs> we had ten Deloreans. I think we only ever had seven in a shot that were working at any one time. <laughs> um, but I got every Delorean on the east Coast, I think, That's come brilliant. to Canberra for a weekend. but you know that that was the kind of thing when you don't have money, you need time, and mm. we 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 put the film together, and there was this moment where um you know in the script it says they they escape the you know the, the prison camp and go to the refugee camp sort of thing and we watched the film and it just was lacking something and I'm like well what about it? instead of just they walk from this camp to this camp they steal a car and there's a big DeLorean car chase thing and that but that happened 6 months after we shot the rest of the film you know so that wasn't something that was initially in there and the luxury I guess of being independent is you know, you, you're on your own time frame. You you do it, you can watch it. If it's not working, you know, there's um you're your own boss. You don't have a studio saying you've got to deliver by this date and, you know, otherwise contract's over, you know, you sort of um so long as you can, you know, we had to we were raising money as we went, you know, so it was not ideal, but it was also um a fantastic learning curve for then coming and doing the next the next film.
2: What was the story about getting Billy Zane? Mm. In I want to, to, hear to. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Hang Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> um, so I I did uh, I did an exchange to North Carolina in university in 1998, um, where I studied film over there and and worked on a bunch of projects. Um, you know, I was saying Dawson's Creek, a film called Morgan's Ferry. As well, and Morgan's Ferry uh, starred Billy Zane, Henry Rollins, and Kelly McGillis. Um, so, you know, off from Top Gun fame, um, Henry Rollins, I had no idea who he was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> He's just this guy I was chatting with, and you know, um, you know, he seemed to have some things to say. <laughs> um, and then Billy, I had um, one of our. I was I was training with a stunt group over there. And one of the the guys at the stunt group was Billy's driver. And we'd just gone out to karaoke one night with a bunch of friends and Billy Zane turns up, you know, at karaoke. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, we just kind of hit it off. He'd, um, he'd spent some time in Australia and he actually knew, uh, sort of the blue mountains area where I'd grown up and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, we just, uh, it kind of stayed friends and stayed in touch. And then he, many years later, he, came to Australia shooting a film called Invincibles, I think, or The Invincibles, something like that. Anyway, I touched base with him again and said, oh, I don't know if you remember me, I, you know, um, a few years ago. And, and, he, you know, he did, and he got me to shoot a little music video for him for one of his music friends. Um, okay. And so it sort of helped him out along the way for a few years. Anyway, fast forward to when we're doing Blue World Order. Um we had this whole thing uh where we were shooting away and then we had a couple of roles where we were like oh we could cast up in these you know these roles and um we thought oh who can we get to play this um main bad guy um and we it was a north korean um general and we found this amazing actor uh called Shingo Usami who who we got and you know rehearsed him and he was great and then one of the roles we were going to cast up in was this sort of small one-day um, role uh, that we're like, oh, let's go out to all the top, you know, Australian, you know, the David Wenhams, Sam Neils and um, whatnot. Anyway, most of those agents wouldn't even pass the script on, but um, Jack Thompson read the script and loved it. Anyway, so while it was sitting with Jack, I was sort of sitting there going, and we're in the middle of shooting, I'm going, oh, I wonder if... I wonder if Billy had want a trip, so I literally <laughs> called him up. And I'm like, "Hey man, do you want to do you want a trip to Australia? You know, for you and your family." And he's like, "Oh yeah, tell me I'm, I'm doing this film anyway." So we sent him, we sent him the uh, the script, and um, then of course we didn't expect Jack Thompson to say yes, but Jack Thompson came back and said yes, and then Billy Zane said yes, and so suddenly, in the middle of shooting production. And I've got the problem of Jack Thompson and Billy Zane have both said yes to this one role. And I go, oh, and and like logistically and legally and all that sort of stuff, it's so much easier to have an Australian, you know, just do it. Uh, we didn't have to deal with SAG and stuff. And so right. we're eventually like, oh, um, look, <laughs> I I've, I've made my other producer actually make the call or write the email saying, oh, look, you know, we're – we're going with Jack. We'll, you know, we'll write something specially for you for the sequel or something for, for Billy. Cause it was quite difficult and um, expensive to have him there. And he was like, you put me in the fucking movie. I've spent too much time. What? Like, he was like, he really wanted to do it. And I literally, when they say sleepless nights, I did not sleep that night. Um, and I went, well, you know, what we could do is make him the main bad guy who was supposed to be this, you know, North Korean general originally. Um, and he was like, yep, cool, let's do it. But we still only had him for the same amount of time. And, um, you know, so it just kind of uh, turned out that uh, yeah, we were you're dealing with their agents, you're dealing with SAG, you're dealing with the MEAA, you're trying to get foreign access certificates and all these things. And you just, you're about to shoot the scene and you hope he got on the plane, you know, and <laughs> and we're shooting in these caves at Wee Jasper with no reception. I sent my partner Sarah off to pick him up from the airport. Um, and um, and and we're like, we don't know if he's coming he's or not. he be there. <laughs> um, and so she... Uh, I get a message when we got back into reception saying, um, yep, Eagle has landed. And so she needed to entertain him for the afternoon. So she went to the movies, took Billy Zane on a movie date and, um, <laughs> and saw a few people, you know, that she knew in town who just kind of were giving her a really strange close look. Um, <laughs> it's like, hang on. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, that, that was the story. It was, it was a case of, um, You turned him down. Well, when it it, um, rains, it pours sort of thing. We didn't think we'd get either of them. And we had Jack Thompson and Billy Zane both say yes to the same part. And like you say, you know, it's curveballs. What do you do? Um, Denson and I were talking earlier today about um, the constraints and what filmmaking is. And it's just it's problem solving on on the fly. You know, they're not the problems that you thought you were going to have. You know, in Denson's case, it's like, well... You know this actor. We can't shoot with them. What do we shoot? How do we how do we get this scene? The sun's not in the right position, or it's raining, and whatever. You know what do you do? So yeah, I don't know how you deal with
0: that. <laughs> well, it's different different techniques for every yeah. problem, really, isn't there? You Come up with new solutions, or fall back onto the ones that have been tried and tested and oh, worked in the past.
1: The apple box on the uh, and the camera on the apple box in a sandbag instead of the elaborate rig. Yeah, oh, yeah.
0: this was just a story I was telling last night that I I just saw. I knew exactly where I wanted the camera. I saw how quick we could get it, and what we needed to do was just an apple box and a shot bag. Boom, camera would go on there. But um, yeah, some of the team thought, no, that's that that's not how you do it. We've got to build a, We'll build a truss. We'll make a re We'll get it in there mm. with an adjustable uh, mount. And um, in the end, I was just like, no, that's not even doesn't even look like the shot I want. I just want it on the mm. apple box, quick and easy. Yeah, but that's something, I guess, which comes from experience when you have issues that come up that uh, you found ways that work and you um, have that in your kit of arsenal of uh, little techniques to pull out next time you have something similar. And do you,
1: now that you, um, you know, generally have the budgets to have more toys, do you still find that you you use lo-fi techniques a lot of the time, solutions, even when you have access to some of the other stuff?
0: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's always... It, sometimes the, the best solution isn't necessarily the most uh, elaborate or expensive or complicated solution. Sometimes it is just keeping things simple, mm. uh, particularly when, I mean, I am mainly doing drama and it's, it's about the storytelling. It's about capturing performances and sometimes you do want to keep it a little bit more simple and focus more on capturing a great performance than doing any fancy camera trickery.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um being around the, the late, great Andrew Lesney on mm. Hobbit was a wonderful experience to see how he solved problems a lot of the time. And they, and they could literally, you know, if they wanted the camera to do this move, they would build a rig and a dolly and a, you know, a railing in the, just, they would build whatever it was to make the camera go where they wanted it to. Mm. But a lot of the time he would just, you know, go into the shed get some fairy lights, pop a thing up and get get a light. You know, he would just, he would from his days on shooting Simon Townsend's Wonderworld sort of mm. thing, you know, he would have these ways of, of getting results that um, when literally, I think he, I remember him telling me a story about on King Kong how, um, you know, the streetlights, um, they built this whole set and the streetlights weren't, you know, receding in the way that they they wanted it to and he's like no it's not working and they literally you know pulled up the set and rebuilt the street and you know resize these street lights um he had that kind of power and ability and yet a lot of the time it would be a very lo-fi simple solution um that didn't require anything other than you know experience i guess Mm. so yeah so that was um yeah that was a, a great
0: great learning experience yeah that would have been great working on that can you tell us more about what your role was on the hobbit
1: um yeah so i, I was officially the um onset colorist um which was basically grading uh this was sort of before yeah you know, this was this was sort of the the cusp of digital so we were shooting on the red epic 5ks um 3d as well wasn't it? Not? yeah and 3d and 48 so I, I was at university i was studying stereoscopic th- storytelling um mm. and hobbit was going to be um 3d 48 frames um and digital and andrew andrew you know amazing as he was had never shot digital and he hadn't shot 3d and so um i think i was sort of uh i was there as his bitch. I mean, interpreter. Uh-huh. I, I just sort of did whatever he needed. And, and a lot of it was um, translating the digital terminology um, into, um, you know, the the cinematography terminology. Not that he sort of needed the help really, but I think he just felt comfortable having, having me there to be an extra layer of um, someone he could uh ask some of the digital questions about with you know <laughs> quietly over mm-hmm. at the the cart without but um and then you know being able to grade the the looks on set um before so I'd essentially grade the rushes um before we'd go and view them at night and that was amazing I've got the the little presentation that I had there speaking of um funny things I don't know if I'm not actually. Read- I might actually bring just this thing up because it is one thing that's on the um on the uh the hobbit side of things that makes a uh makes a little difference. So one of the things I did I'm sure if you can see. Yeah, that way it works well. Um yeah. so we had the uh we had to um uh, when you talk about in you know whole resources, we had the whole bag end set built um, at full scale for the full size actors. And then they had a perfect replica bag end set that was just, you know, down the hall a little bit. That was, I think it was 0.68. There was some percentage, um, that was, uh, Hobbit scale. Yeah. Hobbit scale. So that when Ian was in there, he would appear, you know, large Mm -hmm. and it was, it was identical down to the last detail. Amazing attention to detail Taken them, you know, months and months of construction to build. Get everything just right. Um, anyway, so we get on set, and we start sort of shooting, and and Peter starts looking at me, and he's going, "Oh no, I don't! Uh, I don't know." And and so I'm at the cart there, and so I get uh, Ian um, in a, a green screen version, and. Um, I'm there kind of scaling him up and down for Peter to look at to pop him in. So oh, I'd, right. I'd pop him in and go, oh there you go, um, and put him at different sizes. And, and he's like, oh, there, 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 that one. And so suddenly, and that was, I think, 75% or something. So quite literally, they decided to not shoot on the small bag end set that they'd built and was identical and amazing and shoot on this... Um, Secret stuff, let's not get that. This green screen set mm. that is an identical, you know, it's scaled got the art scaled down. Um, and they had two cameras, uh, Slave Moco, so motion control cameras that were um, three quarters uh, the size of, as well. The challenge in, in 3D, so in Lord of the Rings, they used forced perspective, so mm. um, to make something. Uh, further away, sorry, make something smaller, it was further away from the camera and make something bigger, it was closer, and then, you know, worked the focus so they looked like they are on the same plane. But, of course, in 3D you can't do that because you've got depth perception. Mm. So it was like, how do they get around that? They had these perfectly scaled motion control cranes that moved in sync, and um, Ian would basically, they'd rehearse, block the scene together, and then... um, they would be able to hear each other with earpieces and then Ian would step off into the green screen set and the the dwarves would act it out on the large set at the same time as as it would go. And, you know, Andrew and Peter would view this live composite. Wow. And um just, you know, and and none of this had been worked out ahead of time. This was the thing. These these geniuses were kind of working it out on the fly and going, How are we gonna solve that? And um in one way I felt terrible that I'm just some pleb scaling Gandalf <laughs> up and down. And the result of that was one of, I'm sure there were other contributing factors, but it was one of the factors that was like, he was like, oh yeah, that, that size. And, um, and that meant that they weren't going to use this amazing set that they prepped and built and, you know, um, so anyway, I probably just got myself in yeah. trouble now, now with that, but yeah, bleat, that was. Leaked images from yeah. behind the scenes. <laughs> But,
2: uh, yeah, it was... Um, it's sort of like... Uh, it's almost like people still have no idea at that level, but it, it kind of comes together. and Because people who are making films uh, starting out, they, they think, you know, oh, it's such a different leap to that. Is it? Is it kind of like we're still having the same problems at that scale, it's just a bigger scale but it's it's actually not that different in a way
1: i mean yes and no in my experience like the the people on the hobbit you know they had they had so many crew and they had people who were just there just to grow the grass that was what they did grew it but they were the best grass growers in the world mm. you know everyone was so specialized yeah, the, and so the, good the at their job still there, the, the skill set yeah. was insane yeah. and most people are working I, I use the term eating a lot of humble pie because a lot of people are far more capable than actually what their role is a lot mm. of the time. You've got someone who might be a, you know, a second assistant hair puller or something who, you know, weaves hair into a wig. But they're actually an amazing designer and a costume, you know, creator in their own right. But the bigger the gig, the sort of smaller the cog you are. Mm. And so I think – um those problems come up, but the, the the level of skill that you often have on on those bigger sets, um, you've got people who've been doing it for years and years, and mm. um, but uh,
2: the highly focused, specialised roles. Very, that, yeah. yeah the, the bigger the that project, you don't get when you're making your own short film. You're your own yeah. focus
1: puller and yeah. your you're own. You're mowing the grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't know if I mean Denson's experience if if that's the same.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it is true that um, yeah, you still you still have problems and issues and and mistakes. They're just bigger or more expensive or a little yeah. bit different. But with, you you do surround yourself with the best people mm. who have a wealth of experience, where there's going to be someone at hand that will have a solution, and you find that solution, you implement it and move on, keep going. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's certainly. There's certainly no magic one. You know that. The problems still occur. They're just, um, they've got an extra couple of zeros on the end of them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and you lose a few extra nights' sleep it's, yeah. thinking about them. It's, yeah, certainly. Yeah. What a bit. I wanted to ask, Denson, your time on Get Out. Yeah. You were part of that crew. Did you at the time. Well, first of all, what's how did that project come about mm. and did you at the time know what that was going to sort of become, that sort yeah, of well, um comp, yeah, classic? That was yeah.
0: that was a case of just like, it was, uh, I'd, I'd actually been called in to uh, take over, well to fill in for a camera operator on another Blumhouse film, uh, Insidious Chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Um, their camera operator was leaving and there was two, two more weeks left on the shoot and I got asked to come in. I was like, yeah, I'd love I love Blumhouse and I love, and Insidious would be a great project to work on. And that was with a cinematographer, Toby Oliver, who's also an Australian cinematographer, an exceptional and brilliant cinematographer. Um, he was living in the States. I was living in the States too. We we're in Los Angeles. And um, so I did the two weeks with him on that and had a great time. And uh, at the end of the shoot, he said, hey, I'm going onto this Netflix um, movie and I'm not available to do the um, uh, pickups for this film that I shot with uh, Jordan Peele like, so John peel, he's awesome, I love uh, Kean Peel, yeah, yeah, and I uh, said, What's the project and he said, well you know if you're if you're up for it, would you fill in and um and shoot these pickups for me and so I read the script and it was freaking brilliant I was like this is this is awesome, and got sent the um the assembly of the um the cut as it stood, which they had um screened they had had test screenings of, and came to the conclusion that they wanted to shoot a an alternative ending. Uh, have another chance to shoot the opening steady cam shot. Um, when they did shoot that, it was raining and it wasn't... Um, they kind of rushed it and mm. Jordan didn't get what he was after. And there was a few other things that came up in the... Um, oh, this is the opening scene. There was a few other scenes that came up uh, that they wanted to... In the test screenings, they wanted to adjust and change. So there was a few scenes where they just needed one single shot to help make it work, um, like Catherine Keener's death scene. We, we did a bunch of shots for that um, and... Just some little details and pickups. But yeah, we shot this opening steady cam scene. It looks a little mm-hmm. bit dark there, but it's um looks beautiful on the, on the Yeah, for screen. our
2: viewers, yeah, it, it looks funny too. Is <laughs> I have to crush the TV too, ah, right. otherwise you're all backlit too yeah. much. Yeah.
0: So yeah, then um so uh I had a interview with um Jordan on a video call. Um it wasn't even Zoom then, I don't know what it was, uh, just FaceTime or something and um we, he said, you got the gig? And the next thing I was over in Alabama doing, um, well, actually we shot uh, tests for everything in Los Angeles, and um, which he really wanted to do. Seeing as he had a chance to reshoot some scenes, he wanted to perfect them. So he brought in his stunt guys and we shot stunt rehearsals. We blocked this out um, like the week before um, using my iPad as a... Using Artemis on my iPad, we blocked out this Steadicam shot and uh, had plenty of time to rehearse it, so we could absolutely perfect it. Um, yeah, and uh, had a great time. Yeah, Jordan's a really in- interesting um, director too. Uh, like, because of his comedy background, he knows a lot about timing. And I've heard him say that you know the comedy and horror have a lot in common. It's all about suspense and then release you build up to build up the tension and then you release whether it's laughter or, or, a, or a scream um so he sort of applies that approach to his um his horror and drama but yeah the thing i recall from working with him he he would often talk to the crew and to the cast uh not in terms of what he wanted them to do but what he want how he wanted the audience to feel at the time and and it was and he'd act it out and he would be like talking through the scene. He'd be saying, "This is the moment when the, you know, everyone in the audience are going, oh, what's going on? What's this? What's this?" And then uh, he'd, uh, he'd describe every little blow by blow the reaction that um, that he wanted the audience to be having. And it was such an effective way to communicate because we all clued in. We knew exactly what he was going for, and we all brought our A game to be able to deliver that. So rather than being very specific technically, it was kind of giving us a bit of our own, um, you know, freedom to in creatively interpret that. Mm. And, uh, fortunately he liked what we, what we did. So that was quite a, um, yeah, that was a, just a lucky break of, uh, Toby needing someone to fill him fill in for him. And next I minute got the you're on the
2: set. Yeah. Of, uh, one of the biggest what, horrors of that year. Yeah.
1: But um, it is, well, you know, it, it's one of those things where you say it's a lucky break, but it's years of, Proving yourself, earning a reputation, taking the step to move to LA, to be in a position to get lucky. You know, it's not, um, you know, yeah, well, Denson didn't just... gets that call because of all the work he's done prior, you know, to mm. get lucky, you know. Yeah.
0: And um, that was the first time that I had uh, come in and shot, actually, no, sorry, I did do it on some other smaller productions, but have, you know, had to finish off someone else's job in a sense Mm. but well that's probably a crude way of putting it it was more that there's already an established style and a a look that you need to honor and you need what i'm going to shoot needs to seamlessly cut into that Mm. um and i think i've gotten pretty good at that and i've been asked to do that quite a bit now recently it's not what i ever thought i'd be selling myself as but i can pretty quickly jump onto a project um and step in look at what they've shot get a good sense of the taste the style the the fixer. the aesthetic <laughs> and well yeah maybe i'm the fixer yeah. i don't know but it's it's yeah. probably a good skill to have um just to be able to sort of technically break some stuff down and then think well yeah i can recreate that mm. and then,
2: do you get yeah. um question for both of you. do you get uh doubts or nerves or um i i don't think i can do this still uh I know definitely for me when even at any project nowadays you're like, I don't know if I'll get this one right, but you kind of do. Do you still have those sort of moments where you're like, here I've been thrown into this and I don't know if I can do it or I struggle to, once you get started, are they going to like it, that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. For for me, yeah, and I think if I didn't feel that way, then I was probably doing something a little bit, basic i mean i want to do things that are going to be really challenging me i mean i feel like um like i'm not going to go into a job and and completely fail and not not be able to pull it off it would just be what level of 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 greatness or is it just going to be okay And i think you've got to really strive for it to be amazing and um the thing i learned early on in my career is to have a really good support team around you i'll usually have a, a gaffer and a key grip who have more experience than i do I've worked on films that i enjoy or worked with dps that i really respect and then they become such a great resource on set too because then i can like if i don't know what I need to do in a particular moment i can turn around and say hey you know, what do you reckon? What would so and so, the DP you worked with on that other big film that I liked, what have they done in this situation? Mm. And they can offer up some great solutions. Mm. And that, I think they got your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think well, that's also a great resource to to mm. tap. All that wealth of knowledge.
1: I think it's a little bit like jumping out of a plane and building a parachute on the way down. You know, you have to be confident enough that you, you trust yourself that you'll be able to pull it off you don't know what that's going to entail. Mm. And it, yeah, it's terrifying, mm. but you have no choice. Like it's, mm. you need to, um, you know, you need to, you need to have faith in yourself and, and put all the things in place that you can. Like then someone was saying, work with the best people you can. And then you're always going to have curveball and know that you're going to have curveballs that, um, that you can't foresee. You know, there's going to be issues that you just can never plan for, you know, whether it's you know, yeah, a covid lockdown or a, you know, things outside of your control and um particularly when you're producing, everyone's um problems so sort of, you know things are not your fault but they're your responsibility. You know, if a an actor is or a crew member is stuck in traffic because they left too late and they got caught on the Harbour Bridge, it's not your fault. It's probably not their fault, but you've got to find a solution. And so you're, you're constantly um, having to think laterally and, and problem-solve in ways that are so unrelated to the art of filmmaking that um, you've just got to build all that structure so you can actually um, – do the thing that you love, which is, you know, telling the story and trying to evoke emotion from, from an audience. Um, That's sort of the happy place. Um, And that's, that's probably a little bit um, different when you're doing, doing an independent thing. Um, That's the part that I would love to have taken off me (laughs) where someone else, uh, you know, finding a really good, uh, support producing team to, to be able to, um, and, and you build that. And that's part of my mission in around Canberra is to sort of, um, help build a, uh, sustainable film industry where mm. there's enough people that, um, we can rinse and repeat on these projects. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more, I found a lot easier to get crew this time round in some of the smaller support roles than last time. Cause they sort of didn't exist before, but if, you know, a few years later, um, it's been a bit better. It's, it's keeping them in town is always the problem because mm. get to a certain level and people leave, you know. Um, and you have to, you know, to get the experience. You know, um, you guys obviously, you have to go where the work is as a, a DP. You know, you can't do it remotely. You can't work from your lounge room. You have to physically go on set and shoot in Serbia or Kazakhstan or wherever you it say is. They
0: have to. I mean, it's. You, I'd, I'd want to. Yeah, do. of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. yeah of course. <laughs> want to not do
1: that. Um, but uh you know so if if someone if you're trying to find a good camera crew the good the good camera people are they're often leaving Canberra, of course mm. so um getting a project that will attract the good ones back is um mm. a challenge but um yeah it's certainly uh you you have you have to have faith in yourself um but it's certainly you're full of doubts about um you know there'll be challenges, and you you know but the only way out is through basically you can't once you start i I'm gonna saying before you can't stop there is no there's no quitting halfway through it's just literally not an option
2: mm. yeah, interesting yeah and we'll we'll wrap it up soon um and let you guys get get out to dinner but um. A few things we go on. Right. We got to, we've got to <laughs> I'm mention doing this. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, um, we we can get late night time. <laughs> um, a few things we got to mention. Um, one of your more recent films, Color Room, mm. stunning stuff.
0: Oh, thanks, man. How
2: did how did that one come about? And yeah. how did you enjoy working on on that project?
0: Yeah, well, that was another film with my wife, with Claire McCarthy. She directed that. It was interesting. Uh, I mean, she frequently. Um, will mention to me that a script has come her way and, um, and what do you think? And we would always um, you know, share our thoughts and feelings on projects before agreeing to them. And she said, um, hey, um, there's this project called The Colour Room. It's the story of Clarice Cliff and it was sort of a bit of a blank, and I think she expected me to know who Clarice Cliff was. I said, okay, can you tell me more? She said, oh, she's a um, ceramicist from the 1920s. And I said, okay, <laughs> that sounds riveting. <laughs> and um, I think I sort of maybe downplayed it or you know, was probably a little bit uh, quick to judge because uh, she actually is riveting. She's a really cool woman. And we um, so we made the movie with uh, Phoebe Denevor playing uh, Clarice and uh, Matthew Good playing... Um, um, Collie Shorter, um, and uh, made this, yeah, The Life of Clarice Cliff, as it says there on the trailer. But uh, yeah, this was shot in the Midlands in the UK. I live in the UK now, um, and have been there for a few years. I've been shooting a a lot of projects in the UK, and it just felt like maybe it's time to make it our base for a while. And um, yeah, so we spent a whole lot of time doing research trips to Stoke-on-Trent, where the story's set. And uh, it's set in an era that we needed to recreate. So we needed to do a lot of research looking at um, photography from the period, which is a a big resource of of photography from the period because it was a massive industry. And photography was becoming um, quite the thing then too. So we're very lucky to have a lot of uh, images to reference and um, made this really fun period story. Mm. Mm.
2: And the... um the art of cinematography it's very um very much about the small little details and especially in that it's a very intricate sort of thing and you're you're playing with light Mm. how how did you go with those details and then also does it matter so often you'll, you'll hear people saying oh i watched that and they don't even notice a lot of the stuff as an individual thing but as a whole Mm. it builds a picture yeah how do you find that detail and working with that detail and what you you want to focus on and what you disregard and go that Mm. doesn't matter in this case
0: yeah sure well i think a big part of cinematography is world building Mm. and that means creating a a world that the that the audience lives within for the period of that film and you feel you've been transported there, you feel the texture, you feel the light, you feel, and it's the sound, it's the whole, um, it's the costumes, it's everything within that world. And um, I think to be able to have that world building, you need to feel the atmosphere. And that is part part of the things I need to do, whether it's with a bit of smoke or lighting, lens flares and whatnot. Um, you also need to uh, just see those details. And sometimes it's those little details that the audience doesn't realise, oh, yeah, there was that nice close-up picture of a little thing. It, it'll happen and go past them, but it's a detail that will register and be a part of that building of the world. And it's a little detail that if it's shot in a particular way, you'll feel like it's it's real living in that world and you get a sense of the rest of the world around that. And, um, and those little details are often really important for... Um, for the character too, that you get a sense of the world that they inhabit and the world that they live in. So a lot of that came from either looking at photography and just seeing details in some of those images and saying, oh, we should make something like that. That's kind of cool. And talking with a production designer who's intrinsically responsible for bringing all that with, the, with their team um, to the set. Um, but I do find part of my role, I'll often see, like I we love working with a production designer who will build room rather than just build a couple of views for the camera but you know you've got corners you've got stuff behind you you've got stuff in the drawers and you feel like you're in a Mm. actual space and then that's my responsibility to make sure we capture all of that in there whether it's putting it in the foreground or in the background not everything should have its own cutaway close-up you Mm. want to be able to like if i'm doing a close-up on on an actor then the part of the world building is what's behind that character Mm. what's in the front of them what's what moves around them and to, if you can sneak in as many of those little details into that world building, the the audience is going to take something away from that.
2: And you you hear a lot about you know people having the eye for it. And where do you think your eye came from? Mm. Where did that develop? When did you start? Yeah, um, Thinking about you know cameras and getting involved in that.
0: Yeah, my, when I when I was a little kid, my um, there was two things. My um, my parents had a photo album from their um, honeymoon. They, they, My dad was a Kiwi, my mum was a Perth girl, and they, for their honeymoon, travelled around Europe and India, and they had these amazing photographs that both of them had taken, and they weren't professional photographers, but they were just little details of things that were obviously important to them, and they'd bought this nice little 35mm um, Minolta camera as well, and they were sort of experimenting with it a bit. But I had this whole photo album that I'd flick through and felt like I was traveling through time and into places that I had never, couldn't even imagine until I look at them and then I felt transported into those worlds and that um, I think that influenced the way that I started to look at if I was going to take a photograph I'd want it to you know really capture the atmosphere and the feeling of of that time my dad had a um, National Geographic subscription and I would love nothing more than seeing the latest issue arrive and then lying on the carpet in the lounge mm. room flipping through and going on these adventures and journeys through the photography of these incredible, um, you know, National Geographic photographers. Yeah. And a lot of what they did was like, it wasn't just, here's a shot of the person. It's a, here's a person in their environment, in their world, in their house, in their w- mountains, in their landscape and give some context. And I mean, I think that's the, the perfect, Piece of photography. If you can communicate a whole narrative and get a sense of a person through a single still frame, then that's something that I'd like to bring to my cinematography.
2: Mm. Absolutely, mm. I had the same thing with Nat Geo. Like yeah. those make never much of a reader, but you just flick through all the the, the photos. Mm. And yeah. how about you? You it was acting originally, but oh, um, no, I mean, then coming into it as a filmmaker.
1: Or? It's um. I mean, when I was a young young kid. I used to make ninja movies with my brother in the, uh, in the garden, um, and, and we would rehearse them. And, and then when, when the camera was rolling and we borrowed my VHS camera from my mom's high school, um, she was a high school teacher. And, uh, and then for the rehearsal, we'd, you know, miss. And then in the, in the take, he would beat me up well and truly properly on camera and think, oh, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. As I was blubbering on the floor after a big spinning back kick to the, the gut, um, And so, yeah, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. And then I think as I, like I was saying before, there's nothing to act in. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, you know, there wasn't a lot going on in Lithgow at that time. Um, You have to make your own stuff. And then as you get more involved, you realize it's a living, breathing artwork, you know. So I was very interested in um, visual art and writing and, um, but also sort of, you know, the math, science side of things as well um but i think like Denson was saying it's a bit of a um it's the details i think people don't necessarily overtly notice something specifically but it's all psychology it builds a, a feeling it's like certain colors evoke certain emotions you know if you if you put a certain tone in a film it makes someone feel uncomfortable because it affects you in a certain way if you shoot at a certain angle you know um, it it makes a character feel more menacing or, or bigger or more present or diminishes them, you know. And so if you have someone on the left of screen or the right of screen, you know, there was a great, um, there was a great book I read early on that um, I think it was called Directing Shot by Shot, and one of the things that got me was um, it had this, two, this, this frame of someone hiding around the corner down an alley, And it did it two ways where the person down the alley was um, on the left and the the other person close to you was on the right. And then it did it the opposite way. And it said, what's happening in this frame? And you went, oh, that person's hiding, you know, they're hiding from them. And then, oh, what's happening in this frame? Oh, that person's waiting to jump out, you know, and it was because we read, in the Western world anyway, left to right across screen, the, the character on the left felt more powerful. So in the first frame, when the person is you know down the alley, you feel like the person on the right is sort of hiding from that character on the left. But when it was swapped around, you felt that the person on the left was waiting to jump out and attack the other character. And it was just this epiphany moment to me that, these subtle things, um, we all, we're we all used to reading cinematic language. We all grow up watching TV and we know if something feels right or feels amateur or feels good, but we can't necessarily know why. We don't necessarily, we can't all write cinematic language and getting really involved in learning to write cinematic language, like Denson was saying, the way that the light plays on something creates a very different feel about where you are, then um, you know if it's stark blue tones or if it's warm, kind of earthy, textured, soft tones. It, you feel like you're in the 1950s as opposed to you know modern future. And people will will instantly look at the frame and they'll 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 know or they'll get a feeling, but they won't know why. And I think it's the the job of the filmmaker is to work out that why and then be able to recreate it. Um, so you know, making films is about, it's visual art, it's um, its performance and timing because you edit, you know, edit is kind of, it's, it's composition of the actual frame. So who's on the left and the right and, you know, what angles are you shooting? But then it's also got this element of timing to it. Like you're saying with Jordan Peele, it's about a living, breathing artwork. It's got it's got sound. So it's basically the one medium that involves every Possible other form of artwork that you can think of, wrapped up in the one, the one thing. So if you want to be a visual artist or a musician or a costume designer or a makeup artist or um, a performance artist, you know there's a role in film that that can do that. If you want to be a computer nerd, you know there's post production. There's there's um, it, it's this one. Actually, it was in New Zealand after the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, they were sending trucks down from um, from the Hobbit set with um, emergency relief sort of packages because the film set was sort of the the only place that had all the resources you needed to get a town running. You know, it mm. had generators, it had tents, it had you know, it had clothing, it had just all the expertise and the because you you do build these little worlds. You know, you come together, you you build these little worlds and then you go away and you you either trash it or you pay for it in storage for a long time and I suddenly remember that I've got to cancel my storage king thing. So, yeah.
2: so yeah. if if we're in a zombie apocalypse we should run to a, a, film, a film set. set. Oh a hundred percent. Storage king. Storage or storage king where
1: yeah the uh I mean there's some amazing there's some amazing things uh, laying around in sets and and you see you see these amazing sets that get built with love and detail and care, and then the shot's done and the bulldozer comes oh, in and crash it crashes it and, yeah. pl- and you your heart breaks and you're like but but what if we did <laughs> so that's that's terrifying i was, I was just going to ask um very quickly actually selfishly about um so I'm doing a bunch of research into the uh, the effect of the pandemic on Australian filmmakers or Australian filmmakers' response to it. Um, how did that affect you guys? Um, because you were you were being international, you know, um, at the time. What was the effect of that on where your projects were and how you mm. dealt with them?
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we were we were just finishing a uh, TV series in Rome in uh, at the end of 2019 um a sky series we'd flown into and in fact on the last week of the shoot one of our cast fainted and has had a fever and we didn't know what was wrong with him, and um, they couldn't quite work out and it turned out that he did have covid right. and italy was one of the first places to to really have it and we arrived in the uk um just as all the lockdowns happened and we were fortunate in the sense that we were in post-production on that TV series, so we were working remotely. Um, Claire um, was the director on it, and so she was editing from our house in Notting Hill that they put us up in. Um, so it landed pretty nicely, to be honest. Uh, and then I did the grade remotely. They'd sent over a nice big OLED um, Sony broadcast monitor, and I could review and talk to Jet, the colorist, uh, who had her own matching cal- calibrated monitor, and... So that, um, that, that kind of worked okay. But then when it came to shooting, I think the UK was one of the first to um, get back to work in the film industry because I can remember, um, I mean, at first they were saying, well, are we going to be able to go back to work as filmmakers because it's not really an essential um, service. But um, the film industry did change its categorization from Rather than being an entertainment industry, it's a, it's a manufacturing mm. industry, and we are manufacturing content, content which is massively consumed at this point because everyone's at home wanting content. Yeah, well, so it it was well, did get um. What, what do you do be, to
1: to get through lockdown? Is you you listen to music and you watch TV. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: we were manufacturing. Um, well, that's see, that's also a little bit. Uh, that, Calling it content was, was all is probably quite hurtful to mm. what it is because it is it is either entertainment or it is um, art. art. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we so the UK did get back to work, for, but it had a whole lot of protocols, and they there was a fund there that was for the um, the COVID relief uh, or COVID um, safety protocols on set. So and there was all the you know testing, daily testing, and all right. that stuff. Which personally I find to be the most boring conversation to keep to talk about because it was such a tedious time. Um, but I actually found I started to get a lot of last-minute jobs similar to like talk just talking about coming in and filling in for other DPs because there was because there was daily testing. There was a couple of times where I got a call on a um, Friday afternoon saying, "Oh, hey, our um, DPs just tested uh, positive and we he's down for 10 days right. can you start on Monday and the next thing I'm on a project that's already been shooting for months and jump straight in I'd, yeah. ha- I'd had the weekend to watch some of the material and talk to the, the DP over the phone read the scripts and then land on day one I'm filling in on someone else's project because they weren't permitted to come back out on set mm. um, so it kind of became a good opportunity in some ways yeah
1: right <laughs> Oh, I mean, and that's, that's yeah, that's really interesting there. Um, that's one aspect that sort of hadn't heard of as much before because, yeah, for some people, if they were in post, it was the best time in their lives. They, you know, got lots of work. Um, mm. If you were generally, if you were someone who needed to be on set, like an actor or a DP, it was, you know, crappy time because you, things weren't shooting. Um, but that's, yeah, that's an interesting um, outcome. Where there's probably a lot of projects that are sort of trying to shoot or half shot and um, people are going down.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, right. And so they, the, the project would continue. they just bring in someone else. They didn't shut the project down. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. tested
0: positive. Yeah, right. Everyone else is on standby to step on in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing like a bit of certainty. I mean, filmmaking's, you know, not like it's uncertain enough. You need to throw a few. <laughs> To, you, you, like you said you, you need to be a little bit crazy you
2: yeah to, it, that's, it, that's my takeaway for today
1: well it's i mean, look it's <laughs> canberra is a funny town to be in in that sense because canberra is the epitome of the stable government service job you know there are people you you walk into a, a department and they've been there for 20 years or you know 15 years or something and that and you know a lot of friends i had at the they're terrified of losing their job. They couldn't imagine it. Even swapping from one department to another is a, a big thing. And um, it's the antithesis to the world I've been living in where you're, you know, you don't know what you're doing tomorrow. You mm. don't know where your money's coming from. You, you're, you're trying to pitch something. It may or may not get up. You've got no money and then suddenly you're in charge of a $5 million budget and you've got to be, you know, it's a, an interesting um End of the spectrum compared to the the regular Canberra conversation that you have, because most people here are in a fairly stable um, setup, and they've generally got family and mortgages, and you know it's it's quite the um, the common pathway. Um, so it's it's filmmaking is really a bit of an outlier in this in this town.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and how have you found that? aspect of it especially where your your wife is also in that same boat where you don't know necessarily where the next job's coming and, mm. and yeah there's well, usually one well, breadwinner,
0: one one well, stable person yeah, in the but that's part of the adventure and yeah. I, I work with other directors and on other projects yeah. and you know sometimes there is that uh, phone call where I'm asked what are you doing next week can you get your passport ready we've got a a job and away you go, mm. and that's that. I've, that's exciting. I mean, it, it, we I've, we now have a we've got a son who's he's now 12. That complicates things. Just I can't just jump on a plane and not think about. Hang on, I've got to get him to school, and he's got <laughs> cricket mm-hmm. training on Thursday. But um, yeah, that's that's part that's of the, the fun part, of part of the fun yeah. too. Is that you don't quite know what the next job is, and sometimes it's something amazing, sometimes it's something that's going to pay really well, sometimes it's not what you expected. So it is, uh, yeah, it's not um, it's not, uh, not. the faint-hearted, that's for I sure. I guess the, nat- <laughs> the nature
1: of what you and Claire do, you're, you're probably doing more, um, you know, more different gigs more regularly than, than she's with projects longer. Is that the way it generally works? Like she's, you know, working and pitching and something to get a project up and through that she's going to write and direct, mm. whereas you're able to kind of just jump onto some other projects as you
0: need yeah and yeah Claire's got a slate of projects that at various stages of development um, and just got to get the cast together got to get the budget together for them so there is a lot more long lead but we have the series we did in um, Italy we wrapped on um, the luminaries in New Zealand flew back to we thought we were going to move back to the States we arrived and like A couple of days later, got a Claire got a phone call saying, "Hey, there's this series we're starting up in Rome." So you literally don't know which country you're living in. Can you get on a plane next week? And so we just moved to Rome for nine months and had the best time. That's
1: incredible. Yeah, I mean that's that's great that you've got a family unit that's you know got that flexibility to be able to do that. you know, that the two of you were able to do that. Mm. Yes, Very it's, it's
0: not easy. It does mean we've got three storage facilities around the world <laughs> yeah. full of furniture that we should go back to at some point. All
2: right. A common theme,
0: you, you both need <laughs> to sort <laughs> out <laughs> <of> your storage. <laughs> yeah. <It> is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Filmmakers and their there storage. Could be, there must be a, yeah. a service that can consolidate storage. Yeah. And, uh, like just it. blocks that ch- ch- ch-
1: move around the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, some stuff like the internet, like Facebook groups and things have actually helped where, you know there's um filmmaker groups where you know filmmakers have a house in LA and they're away for a while and they'll they'll rent it out to other filmmakers cheap and stuff like that you know so there's sort of these little sub communities that have developed um because of this um strange transient economy um mm. and and that's been an interesting sort of side result of it all um but yeah, you know, the the people you meet that come down to you work on a project with someone and generally it's pretty tough. They're really long days and you form a real bond and then you have these kind of lifelong friendships that you may not see them again for two or three years or something, but it's it's um generally a very um, you know, well forged um sort of relationship because you, you feel like you've been in the trenches with them a little a little bit. Oh, I don't know if maybe, maybe that's just my own trauma speaking. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, guys. Awesome new uh,
2: chat. Um, I'll let you get going. We'll ask you what's coming up next. So, the uh, states of mind, Whoa. we'll have a sneak peek. We'll, oh, we'll yeah. Give, okay. We'll, well uh, let people. Um, that's coming up soon, I guess, in post production now. Is that got sound with it, or are they just
1: getting a uh-huh. bit of a glimpse? No, it's all right. It's all right. We You're can. are
0: gonna die here. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> I'm glad you are all here. Fighting me, do Don't
2: know what to tell you guys, but uh, I read minds. We do readings, soul crystals, incense, all that shit.
1: I implore it you amazing, to man. give each task yeah. full attention. Reach out beyond you. Why are you here? Well, you said you'd pay us to be
0: part of a study.
1: But what are you? Who is you? I'm my consciousness. Now meditate. If I boost these signals, you can reach out beyond your own senses. An our mind lives all around us. You boosted our signal. But there are entities in this
2: place. You must all stay within the circle or you'll be vulnerable. The Possessor.
0: What's behind the red door?
2: I think there's someone in there.
0: Hello? It's all
2: bullshit. There's no such thing as spirits. You let them use the machine. No! Holy shit, are you guys all right? We used the machine to try and see who was in that room. And when we came back, we got
1: Switched.
2: Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> this independent, you know, independent oh. financing too. Yeah,
1: the uh, wonderful Ross Emery. Um, was our DP for that, Denton? You know, happened to be overseas, unfortunately.
0: Well, Ross has done a <laughs> terrible s- job. had it's... to
1: settle for Ross Emery. That's a tragedy, isn't it? This is um, Ross so is like brilliant. Yeah, yeah, he's fan, he's absolutely fantastic. Um, very very lucky to get him, and means that the film just looks great. And that's the uh, you know that's half the battle. <laughs> just because uh, you know they it gets sold on. You know they look at it from a trailer and key art and they'll make an offer like sales agents and things. And, and it's, they can tell within 20 seconds, the production value of it, you know, this is before they've know the story or seen the thing or know, you know, and we, we worry about the nuance of, you know, this little light here or this key frame in the, the VFX or whatever. And these deals are done at such a high level. They've looked at it. Who's in it? What is it? Oh yeah, we'll give you 50. I'm like, what, that's, that's, that's the deal? Hang on. So it's, um, you know, obviously uh, after that it's got to it's hold up, but um, the way it looks is, is so important when, um, when at first, you know, what, what Denson does to create a, an image or a still or a, a trailer on um, in that first impression has so much value for the rest of the production that um, if it doesn't look like a real film, you know, the rest of it's sort of irrelevant. Um, it's like if you walked into a bookstore and it might be the best story in the world, but if it's stapled together, A4 sheets of paper and hand-scrawled, you don't take it seriously. It doesn't look like a real book. But if it's got a nice cover and it's printed and it's got a, you know, a publisher's label on it, you go, oh, okay, don't know what the story is yet, but it's a legitimate book. You know, it's a getting, to that, getting to that bar of making it just look... Like a real film and sound like a real film. That production value is, um, you know, that's the real challenge of independent filmmaking, anyway, because mm. um, that's not a given.
2: Well, it looks like you've achieved that in this one here, and and how does it feel to uh, play that out now for the first time? Um, that you know, it's a it's a key uh, milestone, right?
1: Yeah, the first
2: on... time anyone sees a frame of that.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did the we did the free fall drop at Questacon today, so it's uh we've we've had a little bit of adrenaline. It's a good uh, metaphor. For yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> a, it is. It is <laughs> it's like you're hanging on to the bar and you're about to let go. That's and it. There's when no the film, turning back. Yeah, there's no turning back. <laughs> it's it's like I haven't hit go on the release button of the film yet, so I'm still hanging onto the bar. <laughs> I can still bail. <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome well great point to finish on thank you so much for uh popping in and having a chat um all the best with the next projects and uh, yeah thank you guys thank thanks you very you. much appreciate it cheers